Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. As any parent of a teen will tell you, those teenage years are crucial for shaping identity and forming authentic interpersonal connections. And today's teens have to negotiate these challenges in the context of a digital and social media world that their parents could never have imagined when they were teens. As our online experiences get more complicated and our online personas assume greater importance in our lives, it sometimes makes us wonder, what will it be like to be a teenager in the future? Dr. Catherine Kenobi is a cognitive developmental psychologist and an honorary at the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences, University of Melbourne. Catherine is also a writer of fiction for young adults and children, and her debut novel, Mind Cull, was recently released by Ford Street Publishing. She wrote the book to explore how teens can work out who they are and develop authentic relationships in a context in which technology can be used to disguise and escape from reality. She sat down and spoke with our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Catherine, if I met you at a barbecue, what do you say that you do? My background is in cognitive developmental psychology, so I'm interested in exploring how people learn from different types of experiences, so the way in which their knowledge and understanding changes. So you actually study learning. That's right. And how our brains change. Tell me about the teenage brain. The teenage brain is very interesting because it's a time when people are starting to work out who they are and wanting to form meaningful and authentic relationships. And their brains are still developing in various ways, though. So, for example, executive function isn't fully developed yet and impulse control. Right, so that's decision-making and risk-taking behaviours. That's right. And there's lots of uh, vulnerabilities that teenagers have that perhaps are less so for adults who have developed further. So I'm really interested in how teenagers respond to technology in their lives. Now, you're also author of a book called Mind Cull. So you've merged your love of cognitive psychology with concerns about teenagers. What inspired you to write this novel? I've always loved reading for a start to go right back and always been drawn into the magic of books and stories. And within my field, um, I've discovered that when people read, they really do enter a fictional world in quite profound ways. So when we read, um, and this is uh, research from brain scans, from experimental studies, when we read um, and we kind of are drawn into the story, we're vicariously experiencing the actions of the characters, we uh, learn about empathy and interpersonal sensitivity, and we're drawn into that story in quite in ways that change us and make us think and actually um, cause us to respond in new ways to people in our lives. So not only do we have empathy for the characters, but we identify with them and we also kind of rehearse in our brain, what would we do? 
That's right. So, for example, when you're reading a story about a character kicking, the parts of your brain associated with the action of kicking will light up. And there's some really um, lovely work on the Harry Potter story and people entering into Harry, learning how to fly for the first time, as though they themselves are learning how to fly. And so that's a really wonderful way to engage with teenagers. So storytelling is the oldest form of communication and it's the oldest form of learning, I guess. That's right. We, um, we've been teaching through stories for a very, very long time. And I think that it's important if we want to engage teenagers in a particular issue and really develop the discussion to think of a, a range of ways of getting them involved and to enter imaginatively into a future story is one way. Tell me about your novel, Mind Cull. So Minecull is set in a future world. It's not too far into the future. So it's, I'm imagining it to be maybe 20 or 30 years into the future. So it's not too distant from where we are now, but it is different. And in this world, people rely on virtual reality headsets the same way we rely on smartphones. So they use them all the time. And if they're having a conversation with someone, want to call them, that person can appear to them in the room as a hologram and it'll be as though the person was present with them. They will see see them through their lenses of their headset and hear them through their earbuds as though they were present in the room. And I have a scene where my character's walking down the street and she's not enjoying the view. So she just switches places and she can, um, it's as though she's experiencing a different street, even though she's actually in the same place. Um, she is a person who posts public virtual reality clips as a lot of teenagers in this world do and her clips are so successful that she is shortlisted for an international competition by a global tech giant and this involves her travelling to a mansion in England to try out a new virtual technology skin suit. So, of course, being a thriller, the plot thickens and law enforcement officers coerce her into spying for them. <gasps> no spoiler alerts, though, Catherine. No, no, I just, I just, just did the beginning and underground activists reveal a murderous plot. <gasps> so she's surrounded by lies and deceptions and she's trying to work out what the truth is, who she can trust and how far she's willing to go to protect innocent lives. Well, gripping. And I've heard you've had great reviews with this novel. This is a futuristic teenager, but you are clearly inspired by today's teenager. Let's talk about the teenager and today's online world. I was inspired by today's teenager, and I think the issues are the same, except I've taken them to an extreme and kind of extrapolated them into the future. So my main character is 16, and her name's Isla. And Isla's problem is, or one of her problems is, she's not really sure if people are who they appear to be. You know, people communicating with her and she doesn't really know exactly who they really are. And she herself is an interesting case because she presents one version of herself on the in the virtual world, which she feels is quite different from the real her. So her virtual reality clips come across as though she's spontaneous and fun-loving and relaxed. And in fact, they're very carefully rehearsed and produced and put together. So when people love her clips, 
on the one hand, that uh, gives her some, you know, warmth and uh, makes her feel good. And on the other hand, she feels like they haven't really connected with her, the real her at all. Right. So she's kind of feeling like that's only one side of me. It's a constructed side of constructed, me. Constructed, exactly. It, it's a, an identity that I've constructed, but she also feels like a fraud because it's not authentic her. And I think that we all do this. I mean, if you think about how, it's not just teenagers, how all of us use perhaps social media, we will present a version of ourselves that we would like the world to see. You know, we we would present pictures of things we would like people to celebrate with us. And the darker side of ourselves, the more vulnerable side of ourselves, we keep private and we Mm. keep safe. But what that means is that when people interact with us via social media, there is a level at which they don't connect with us and there's a level at which it can be quite a lonely experience for us. And from the other side, you're seeing the best of me. You're seeing all the things about me that I'm sort of aspiring to and all the, all the happy moments. And that actually doesn't leave you feeling great about yourself always. No, you may, I feel depressed. You, mm. you feel depressed. Mm-hmm. You get on Facebook and you see all these happy families and happy people and you think, oh, gee. I'm a loser. <laughs> <laughs> My family's not like that. No. <laughs> I'm not like that. Look at all their achievements. Yeah, and you do. You think I'm a loser. And that is exactly the reaction. A large proportion of researchers are arguing that that is the reaction that a lot of teenagers feel from social media. So there are associations between um, social media use and symptoms of depression and anxiety. And it's also addictive. You'd think that something that caused you to feel kind of less than fabulous wouldn't be so addictive. And we know now today there's a lot of, um, there's a gaming disease identified by the World Health Organization as well, the addiction of social media and gaming. That's right. So recently the World Health Organization has uh, introduced a gaming disorder into its international classification of diseases. And the idea of this is that this is a use of gaming where it takes over in the sense that other aspects of your life are not functioning as well because of the gaming. So other things are suffering because you can't seem to control how much you are gaming. You can't seem to stop your gaming. You you um, let other things in your life go and other relationships and opportunities go. What's going on there? Is it, I mean, it's different to social media where you're constructing an identity that you'd like to be seen as. Gaming kind of gives you instant gratification and challenge and that sort of thing. So explain to us more from what cognitive science tells us. Well, it actually... On one level, the explanation could be that people are, people's behaviour in both of those, gaming and social media, is being reinforced in various ways. So when you're gaming, you're gaming for a certain period of time and you get rewards along the way. And that makes you feel good. That lights up the pleasure centres in your brain. And so you want to keep going. And when these rewards are scheduled in such a way that a person you know, keeps going for a while and then they'll get a reward and then maybe they'll get another one. It makes you continue. And it's actually not that dissimilar with likes and things like that in social media where you get the reinforcement of, oh, someone said something really nice about me. You know, I've got all these love hearts appearing on my screen and that made me feel really good. And then the next time you use it, that doesn't all happen. But if you keep going, you might get that reinforcement again. And what we're talking about here is persuasive design. 
because the designers of the game are actually constructing the online environment in such a way that users are drawn in in the first place and then are kept there. They want to keep going there. They're um, using behavioural techniques to help to encourage people to stay in the game or in the social media. So they're trying to increase the time. So it's um, not a neutral environment in that way. It's an environment that's constructed to actually draw you in and keep you in by experts in the field. Persuasive design, it's been used in advertising, but now it's pervasive in front of you, in your face, with social media and, I guess, gaming. The underlying thing of persuasive design, is it trying to extract money from you? Well, I guess if you've constructed a game or a social media platform, what you the end result you want is lots of people using your game or your platform. I mean, that's that's where the profit is, isn't it? If, yep. if your game is really popular and you want them to use it for a long time, you don't want them to find it easy to switch off. And so I have teenagers of my own. And when my son is playing Fortnite and he can't switch off, I try to remember that it's a fairly uneven competition or battle in some ways because he is a 16-year-old boy who's up against experts in technology and behavioural techniques who have constructed this environment to make it hard to switch off. And he has a teenage brain. And he has a teenage brain, so that makes it even more difficult. I mean, it's hard enough. Many adults have this response as well, but teenagers are particularly vulnerable for the reasons we talked about before. This addictive effect has had negative consequences. Is there any pluses to the social media world that science has identified? Oh, yes, there's lots of pluses. And in fact, perhaps I've been presenting the research in a less than balanced way because I should say that there is a lot of controversy over these issues. So it's the field is very disparate and there's lots of people measuring outcomes and the independent variables in different ways. So they're looking at how do we understand gaming or social media use or screen time? How do we measure that? And then also how do we measure various outcomes like well-being or anxiety and depression? And everyone has different cutoffs and different ways of measuring these things. And therefore, there's a range of studies with different outcomes. It's probably fair to say that there are links between extensive screen use and symptoms of depression and anxiety, but not every study has found that. And some studies have found positive results for social media, for you know, a sense of connection with people and things like that. I think that we need to have some more fine-tuned research, which is looking at kinds of use of either games or social media and more fine-tuned outcomes. But that's a very difficult thing because the researchers are struggling to keep up with the changes in technology. You know, so now the studies that are coming out about Facebook, that's very interesting, but most teenagers don't use Facebook anymore. So it's, it's very hard for the researchers to actually not be responsive to the changes in technology, but to actually be um, getting ahead of the curve and, you know, thinking about the effects into the future. Sure. And I've encountered apps myself, which are um, about sort of positive psychology and well-being and healthy eating that have made me laugh, that I enjoy 
connecting with each day um, that have had a positive effect. So I guess um, there is, of course, a range of things that to teenagers as well that perhaps reduce social isolation. But let's talk about social isolation. Social isolation is seen as one of the biggest mental health crises that we're going to be facing. Whilst social media connects us, it doesn't really. No, that's a really interesting issue. I think that's one thing I've really tried to explore in my book because you are certainly able to connect with people that you wouldn't be able to connect with. And so for um, people with particular types of, for example, disorders or difficulties, for them, being able to connect with similar people around the world is a lifeline. And so we wouldn't want to, uh, you know, be saying that technology is a bad thing. I think that I want to be saying, let's look at how we use technology. In particular, let's think about the vulnerabilities of young people and think about how we can use it well and be discussing this and finding ways to reflect on this. So technology is with us and it does many, many wonderful things. Um, But we also need to be aware and on top of the risks. That awareness is really important. I mean, it's physically changing our brains, I believe, as well. Are teenagers involved in the discussions and debates about where some social media is actually pure exploitation, extracting you from dollars and that sort of stuff? Is that discussion going on in the teenage community? I think so. I I think that they're pretty savvy in lots of ways and that schools are doing their best and parents are doing their best, but it is a very quickly changing area and very difficult to keep up with all of the permutations and combinations and all of the trends and possibilities. And so... As you know, the gap between what appears to be real and what is real, which comes to you via the internet, via social media, is a dangerous place. So it can be a place where bullying occurs, where grooming occurs, where all sorts of problems happen for, and that that teenagers are, as I say, particularly vulnerable to. But it's important to consider this space between what is real And what we are perceiving through the internet and through social media and through our online environments and actually be aware of that and teach our teenagers to be aware of that. In some ways, you've made me think that even real life is just a perception, (laughs) let alone a virtual reality goggle thing. Well, that's right, actually. I mean, we, we, you and I may look at the same object and perceive it differently because of our beliefs and our context and our background. However, I I think we also do understand that there is a real objective object there that we are both perceiving differently. And with perception kind of becoming enmeshed into technology, the way it is in our world and also in my future world in the book, I think that then we become even more suspicious of what we're seeing and hearing and whether that is real or not real. Is that the moral of the story? Yeah, what is real is a key question. You've been a cognitive psychologist and an author. What has surprised you in this journey? Well, one thing that's really interesting is since I've written the book, I've been going in and visiting students in schools and talking about the issues raised in the book. And 
Although I know that the book is a thriller called Mind Cull, so that may raise some alarm bells with the students in terms of what this future world is going to be like. When they haven't read it, I talk about the world in a very positive way and say, what do you think it would be like if you could just, you know, see and hear different things and you could um, transmit what you're seeing and hearing to your friends and you could talk to them via a hologram and I sort of go into what the world is like and then I say, who thinks that that would be a good world to be in? Would you rather be in that world? And they all say no. <laughs> they all say Do they? they're all suspicious and they also know we don't want to be in that world. And I would really love to do some actual empirical research on that now and probe why, what's the basis for their suspicion? Why is this an unease about where technology is going or where we are now with technology? So, yeah, that's really interesting. Dr. Catherine Kenobi, next time we're on our phones and we realise we've been there for a little bit too long, what would you like us to think about? Well, I would like you to think about the things we've, we've been discussing about persuasive design, I guess, that that app's designed to actually pull you in and get you interested. I would like you to think about how you can extrapolate from that experience to discuss these issues within society and with young people in particular. Um, and being a writer of fiction, I, I think that it'd be great if we could use stories and ideas to kind of bounce around these issues and talk them through. There's also evidence that storytelling is healthy for you. Um, it's healthy in the way you make social connections as well. That's right. I mean, there's some lovely, elegant studies where people have read, like they've, they're actually kind of quasi-experimental controlled studies where people have been, you know, randomly assigned to groups and one group has read a particular text. And then like a week later, they've had an opportunity to perform an empathetic act. And the people that have read the text that is you know, promoting kindness and empathy, actually more likely to do that kind act. And so I love that sort of research. I think that's really interesting. I've always found the truth stranger than fiction, but that's a type of storytelling as well, in the sense that these stories are like or close to what really happened. Oh, that's right. And it's really interesting you say that because in my own personal journey as an academic who's then written fiction, I've seen a lot of parallels between thinking about a really important idea, going out and collecting data, analysing it, and then constructing a narrative around that data, telling a story about what the results mean. And it's still something that's really important to you that you're telling a story about with science, you're constrained by the actual figures and the actual data. And with fiction, you have this wonderful freedom to sail off into possible worlds. But it's still telling a story about something that really matters in a way that you hope will affect people. We remember stories. We don't necessarily remember facts. That's right. That's true. Yes. Dr. Catherine Kenobi, thank you for your story. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Dr. Catherine Kenobi, author and cognitive developmental psychologist at the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. Catherine Kenobi's book, Mind Cull, is out now through Ford Street Publishing. 
Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on October 8, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.